Welcome to the CDC Podcast Minnesota 11. Sitting across from me this month is editor of Creative Fluff, Fred McCoy. Hey, everybody. And to summarize the purpose of these minisodes, the point is for each of us to highlight three games apiece, games that haven't gotten a lot of criticism or any at all. The idea is that one of you intrepid listeners will try one of them out and correct that oversight. The games we talk about will range from itchy art games, prestige-level indie games, right on through to AAA games that might have slipped through the cracks. Fred, you're up first. So the first game that I picked for this mini-sode series was the game Salt. So Salt, as it is, is an open-world exploration game where you start in on an island with nothing at all. It's based in a low-poly world. Not the point. You essentially have to gather a bunch of tools to build yourself a boat to go to the next island. The thing that I like most about this, and just kind of what got me going in it, is that you have to be really open-minded about how you go about finding the different tools and objects needed to build a ship. So to build a sail, you need the cloth, you need rope, you need to get rope, you have to find reeds. To break down the reeds, you have to find a knife. To find a knife, you have to open the rock. To open the rock, you have to find a pickaxe, and then you have to build the pickaxe. So it's very arduous process, but not nearly as arduous as some other survival games that are currently out there. And what's interesting about Salt is just how far it makes you go in terms of navigating the world. So when it comes to naval navigation, you actually have to use a compass and a sextant to figure out what quadrant of the map you're on. And I should point out that there is no map. It just says what quadrant you're in, and then the compass to figure out whether you're going north, south, east, west, what have you. And the thing that struck me most about salt is that I actually ended up having to take a physical piece of paper, divide it up into quadrants, and then start plotting all the different regions, as well as the different save points, merchants, which don't move, quest items, bosses, which islands have spiders on it, which islands don't have spiders on it, which islands have treasure on it, which islands have more pirates on them. And at the end of this, I found myself with a very robust physical piece of paper that just represented all the effort that I put into this game. And there are very few games that have me going through these kinds of lengths where I actually feel fulfilled and immersed in the tasks that I'm doing. And it's not often that something in the digital world forces me to interact with an object in the physical world. So it's definitely something that I'd like people to take a look into. It's Of course, it's early access. It's not without its bugs and faults, but I don't think that detracts from the overall experience. And it's a great opportunity to take a look at a game that really draws you in despite having not the best graphics, definitely no far quality content here, but it definitely has a really unique experience that if you're into open-world exploration, it's worth playing and definitely worth seeing what thoughts you get out of. I've been looking at images of the game here, and when you say low-poly, it's like a very smoothed-out PS2 version of low-poly. Yes. Very bright, and not quite cel-shaded. Now, so I should also mention they've also been updating the graphics yeah. a lot recently, so the version that I played was very... Very low poly, but yeah, I mean, they've definitely made some inroads in terms of upping the graphics quality without taking away that, like, classic feel. My main question is, though, because you get, like, a lot of these inspired-by-Minecraft sort of boom that we've had in the last few years, what makes Salt different, and if at all possible, why is it called Salt? Well, 
I'm pretty sure it's called salt because you spend the majority of your time on the ocean. Yeah, so, I, just, I, mean, that I, I realized yeah. that as soon as I asked. So you'll spend a lot of time on the water sailing. I spent a lot of time just sailing on the ship going nowhere. And I'd say it's a little different in Minecraft is that Minecraft, you know what you're getting into. You're getting a pickaxe, you're digging, and you're building a world and shaping your own image. You don't shape salt. Salt shapes you. You don't get to change the world. You only get to interact within it. The world's already set. You have a procedurally generated world within a certain set of limitations. But at the end of the day, you really have no control over what's going on, where the pirates go, or, you know, what types of objects you interact with. You don't get to change anything. You can't plant, you can't grow, you can't dig. The biggest thing that you can interact with is your own ship, which you can build. And even then, there are limitations on that. So, salt tries to confine you within a very set world while letting you experience that world to the fullest. So I'd say that's the biggest difference between this and, say, a Minecraft. The other option that I came up with, because I've, I've done, or at least tried games like this, the one that I've heard about was uh, Don't Starve, mm -hmm. which comes out with a very nihilistic-style feel. Yeah. What is, like, the, I guess, philosophy idea behind the survival here? I'd say what's unique about Salt and why I preferred Salt to, like, Seven Days to Die or even Don't Starve is that I didn't feel pressured. I mean, I know that my bar was going... There's a bar that indicates how hungry you are, but even when you run out, it just slows down things like regeneration. You can't run as fast, you know, like you don't die necessarily right away. But I like that salt makes you feel hopeful. It always feels like there's something more to do, something more to explore, something to find, whereas in Don't Starve, it's, I don't want to die when it's in Seven Days to Die. I don't want to die and a lot of those games, they really they they want to stress you out. Where I think Salt really wants you to push yourself to see what's out there. All right. So my first game. For those who have been listening, you'll notice that being the only recurring person on the mini soap means I tend to run through my games real fast until I realize I have a whole stack of games that never got written about from previous generations. So I dug into my copies of uh, DS titles and found. Hotel Dusk, a type of visual novel puzzle game where you play as a private investigator after with a past where something went wrong and you're just going off on a mission to this hotel out in the middle of nowhere to meet someone or track something down and you end up talking with some quirky characters and the guests walking around in this really interesting kind of first-person perspective while you're walking through hallways, you use the stylus to move forward and turn left, like it, almost like it's a first-person shooter, which instead of a mouse, you have a stylus with the D-pad to move. And you find items that you have to then use against other items or show people in to figure out, to get conversation options. You have to talk to people. It's really sort of film noirish private investigator style thing. And the art style is really interesting when the people come up because they're all, like, paper drawn. It's like white and black, like, pencil drawings. And you'll and there's no voice acting because it's a DS title, and I'm not sure how much they could have gotten in there if they tried. You, you have a woman handler at the private investigation and agency that you can talk to for hints. And the story that comes out of this, I'm not sure how much I can reveal because you don't really know what you're investigating when it comes to... I just remembered, I haven't played this game in a long time, but the the private investigator is also a cover as a traveling salesman, so you have a briefcase full of items that you have to quote-unquote, like, 
try and be like the door-to-door salesman with, but they also have objects that can help you with the investigation. It's a DS-style sort of point-and-click adventure game. It was at the early stages of the DS when they were trying to use all the little unique qualities because, ooh, we have this new technology, we should learn how to use it, we should see what we can do with it. And it was one of a good number of visual novel games that came out on the early DS. And this one was probably the best of them. But at the same time, it's such a niche genre, and that was before its niche took off on the internet. It's something that people feel, you know, we should sort of pay attention to this style of interactive fiction. I feel like there's enough interesting details and enough interesting character work that you could dig into as like a sort of artifact of its time, even if it isn't, even if it doesn't hold up to this day. I haven't actually tried it again. It might actually be worth going back and seeing how like this the investigation story and the sort of light noirish tropes coincide with everything. And of course, this being an early DS title, there are little like Professor Layton style puzzles where. The story will not continue unless you're able to solve how to move three matches to make this into a different size triangle or whatever. So I have a couple of questions that immediately pop out. The first one, is this an import game or this is a translated game? Was this originally a Japanese game? It originally was a Japanese game, but apparently they thought the DS, either the DS doesn't have enough titles on it that uniquely Mm -hmm. show off the DS, or the DS was doing so well they thought anything could do well. So then my... I have an English version of that. Fair enough. Work. No, so my actually my follow-up question is, then is this a Japanese percept, uh, Japanese take on American noir, or is it Japanese noir that they're channeling into? My memory is that the main character has a backstory in San Francisco. So it's how some, they perceive our noir. I feel that's the way. And the thing is, I can be wrong because I'm doing this mainly off memory. Oh, incidentally, the full title is Hotel Dusk, Room 215. The back of the box is being very unhelpful. Fair enough. I mean, the kind of question that I'm trying to get out with you is, do you think that, I mean, you are essentially my go-to expert in all things game and film noir. It's kind of your thing. So, when other cultures do American noir, do you ever notice a difference, or is it usually just pretty... Does it all kind of bleed together? Well, the all the the big example that you go for is like the zombie film. It's like you know Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead and its remakes and how it's delineated in American media. Mm-hmm. Well, the Japanese version is Resident Evil. You're going to notice exact. This is their attempt to look at something that is outside their culture, and of course they're going to put their own twist on it. Okay. They're going to put their own understanding, their own backstory, history, and culture. And it's going to look a little strange to us, but mainly it's because something new is being created out of something old. Although Hotel Dusk is actually kind of conventional, and it's more the gaminess of how to... Because this is still... This was, like, what, 2007? This was still a time when they didn't think a fully narrative game could hold its own. So they have to put little... Like I said, the match thing. That is an actual thing. This actually has, like, a clock going on. So when you progress elements of the story, the clock will move forward. Eventually, in the evening, I was at a bar, and this guy wouldn't talk to me unless I finished his riddle of matchsticks. So it's a lot of touchscreen implementation, but the dialogue is kind of interesting. 
Although I have to, I do love that while there are some rare instances where you can die, the main fail state is getting kicked out of the hotel. I would imagine so. <laughs> From my memory, there's only one place where you can actually die, and that's because you get locked in a room with no door. Wow, okay. <laughs> so my last question, at least for you about this game, is I was taking a look through the screenshots, and I noticed that pretty noticeable aesthetic difference between the characters and the backgrounds. Was that jarring to you to not have that same paper-drawn quality backgrounds when you're, like, clicking through things? Like, how did that... Well, no, because uh, navigation is real-time. You actually, like, walk as if it were a first-person walking game, a walking simulator game. But then when the pace, when the face... Then it goes, like, visual novel, where you're no longer looking through the eyes of the characters, they're two talking heads opposite one another. And, oh, and the main selling point is, is that you hold this like a book. You actually have to turn the DS on its side to hold it like a book. Oh, it's, it's a cute gimmick. I think that's actually, like, the word for it. It's a lot of different gimmicks put together to see what works. And I don't know if it comes into a whole... It also kind of, like, implies that this was going to be the first in a series. Mm. But... And it might have been, and just not gotten over here. Of course, my knowledge of this history is shaky. It's just, I know this is a niche title, and niche titles... And it's a genre that's usually famous for Japan. So I... My memory is of this. I could look it up. But we got to move on to your second game. Well, since we're already talking about interactive fiction, I'm going to bring up one of my favorite games and one with a lot of feels. We're going to talk about A Choice of Robots, which is a 300,000-word interactive fiction story by Choose Your Own Adventure Game. Or Choose Your Own Games. I forget the exact name of the company, so don't quote me on that. Oh, no, it's by Choice of Games. Thank you. And this is what they do. They do interactive... Fiction games, that's all that they do. It's what they do best. They do wonderfully. What's great about this game is this game is about, I'm trying really hard to describe this like super easily, but you build your own robot and then it takes you through the life of this character. And depending on your choices, I don't know, maybe you blow up the world, maybe you start a robot war, maybe you marry your robot. I don't know who you are. I mean, I know what my choices led me to, but we could out be. Out of curiosity, what did your choices lead to? I, I died. A peaceful death surrounded by people I love, and that's how it should have ended. I, I have actually played some of their earlier projects. Uh, Choice of Dragons is the one that I mainly remember. You get to be a dragon and do all these dragon things, although it had a very linear progression. It was almost like a series of scenes that were predetermined, and it's just how the scenes ended up that allowed you what you could do. So this, um, I mean, I think they've come a long way with the Choice of Robots. So the Choice of Robots, you essentially start out, and mind you, you can play this on your computer... You can play this on your Android phone. I was playing it on my phone, and I found myself playing it while walking through New York City. I almost ran into people. I ran into scaffolding. I've never run into scaffolding before. So if, that wants, if that indicates how immersed in this game that I was, it's just text. Well, books are it's just It's the text. power. I've never... Well, it's not like I walk around New York carrying Harry Potter or something. I'm not going to walk into a wall. With the choice of robots, what I found interesting is that you start with really weird questions. The first questions of the game are, where are you right now? And it's, the choices are, if I remember correctly, sitting in the Irish countryside watching a sunset with your robot, standing before a robotic Egyptian god answering for your sins, and the last one was standing in the middle of a field with a gun for an arm, with robot parts strewn around you and your metallic lords overhead. I picked answering for my sins in front of a robot god, in case anyone's curious. But, What's fascinating is that this game 
draws you in from day one. You pick your character, you choose your name, you interact with your robot, and depending on who you are, you can interact with your robot as a robot, as a child, as a companion, as a friend, and those choices impact the different aspects of that robot's personality in terms of empathy, in terms of how militaristic it is, in terms of how smart it is, how autonomous it is, and you can always check to see what your robot's essential stats are, and that really does impact the game. It really does branch out into a whole host of different things that can happen. I finally, after I beat the game, I looked it up just to see all the different choices available to me, and then I realized, whoa, this could have gone south in a million different ways, and I had no idea what was going on. My robot had eight spider legs, a Venetian mask. I called her Aphrodite. She was my baby. And then the military tried to reproduce her, and I wouldn't let her. And war broke out, but I ran away to Alaska. And things kind of dovetailed from there. This game has a lot to offer, and if it sounds like I'm not selling it to you, it's probably because this game really is your own. You're going to play it, and your experience will be completely different than my own. I play this game with my other best friend. We play this game a lot together actually just to see like how this will play out but never have we ever had the same result or made the same choices yet we've played this game at least five or six times between the two of us so i mean there's definitely a lot in there and this game was written by an mit robotics scientist who specifically wrote his thesis on the morality of robots i mean he does work for the government when they talk to him about ai and stuff like that and this is his big opus to his thesis work essentially where he gets to wax and wane about the morality of robots how they think how they'll interact with humans in the future and taking a look at it through that lens and just understanding humanity by understanding ai i think it's fascinating and i would love for more people to play this game and die inside like i did this <laughs> It's interesting you bring that up because I've seen like a number of people talking about we're getting to the point where AI rights is going to become not science fiction but a legitimate question that we're going that to have comes to answer. Up. That comes up in there. There's a big court battle about it if you choose there to be. I feel like that right there is enough material for a dozen think pieces across the internet. Alright, my second game going in almost the exact opposite direction because while it's going for the feels, it doesn't have any text. I... And talking about the, I don't know if it's on iOS because I played it on Android. It's a mobile game called Gathering Sky, which I just you can also get on Steam. Effectively, it's a top-down perspective. It started as a bird, then you'll see other birds flying around. You collect them, and soon you have this entire flock of birds. And on my tablet, you just hold the finger down, and you follow, and the entire thing will follow where you point the fingers, and. I don't, like, there's no map, there's no th there's no direction, you're not funneled through way, there are obstacles, like, because I say it's top-down because that's how you see the birds, you get to see their wingspan, but you keep going through, like, caves, so make of that what you will. It's a, it's a weird perspective, but you run with it, because it works. And... And, of course, you can hit thermal winds that will speed you up as you glide through these, these slip streams. And technically, you can feel like there's a challenge, like the idea of having to try and find things. Then, of course, you have to look, there's points near the end of each level where you have to hit little glowing circles to, like, try and get things to move forward. I, like, a lot of it is metaphorical or sort of abstract in that sense, because I think the main purpose is the music. 
and the idea of synesthesia, of connecting that nature to these this string orchestral score, because as far as I'm able to understand, the score was specifically made for the game, and it will shift in and out based on how like fast the action is going, how well you're hitting these thermals to speed it up or slow down. And if you can actually play it through, all the levels are c- continuous. Though you, you can quit out, you can go to like a level select screen and it'll put it you at basically what will amount to different tracks. Because each one has its own music associated with it, and it's like Flower, and like last time I said with Prune, the arc isn't traditional narrative. It's more of story arc that is there. The building, the building crescendo, the lowest point, the return and rise, climax, denouement, arc is still there, but it's all emotional. It's all the feel of that arc with presented backgrounds and abstract senses that give the feel of the narrative arc without actually having a front and center drama. I really have got to figure out what to call it. It would be a lot easier than having to describe it each time. It's an interesting game, and again, it's one of those things that I feel needs more words attached to it, because we don't know how to describe things that aren't fit in a standard mold. We don't know how to do the really abstract. We don't know how to do the really aphorismal. That's not a word, is it? It's not. You're making it up now. I was trying to go, like, turn aphorism into an adjective. Anyway, really, if you're listening to this and you can't, just look it up on your phone and you'll see a bunch of little black dots in the shape of birds flying around in a flock. And it goes along to very nice orchestral string music. And that's really what there is to play. So it really is the moment-to-moment experience, the connection between activity and finding your way through the skies to this music that ground it and make you want to keep playing, as well as try and connect it to, I guess, the lizard brain of your emotions rather than intellectually engaging you. And then, of course, it has the really out-there ending where you connect different stars into a tree that then you can all perch on in the sky. I have no idea what that means, but it looks nice. So my only question about this is, I mean, this is clearly an emotionally driven interaction. What emotion did it leave you with when you play it? Connection with nature. Felt a little at peace with yourself. That's good. Uh, Not quite like prune, because occasionally there are hawks that will grab a bird or two of your flock. Okay, well... I don't know. It's... What do you feel when you listen to Stravinsky or Vivaldi, which I realize are two very completely different styles of classical music? Well, it depends on the song, mostly, but I feel typically I'm not thinking, I'm imagining something. I, I feel it's... I guess you could say this is putting visuals to the music, kind of like that Disney did with Fantasia. Which, honestly, I kind of wish I'd started with, but I don't think of these things until I've finished des- describing them. Fa- the Fantasia of video games. I can see that. Okay. All right, let's finish it up with your third game. So, my last game, Kingdom, is nowhere near as peaceful or as nice and connected with nature as Gathering Sky. So, Kingdom is a side-scrolling game where you can only use four keys. You go back and forth to essentially, you're a queen or a king without a kingdom, and you have to start it up again. You have some gold pieces and you have to essentially build your camp. Um, and you do this by hiring workers 
and letting your workers build things like walls, letting them mine, letting them build catapults and torches and building your kingdom up. And the thing is, when nighttime rolls around, if you haven't built walls, these weird little creatures from the forest come, they break through your defenses, and they will attempt to steal your crown by knocking the crown off your head. And the thing is, there is no kingdom without a crown. In fact, I think that's one of the lines they use to describe the game. What's great about this game is that it only uses four keys to do everything that it does. The left and right keys move you back and forth. The up key spends your money when you're standing outside of a specific stall or a person you want to spend money on, and pressing down picks up money off the ground. And those are the only four actions as the king or queen that you can use. And it took a while. It was a lot of trial and error for me to even last more than, like, five days. So I think right now it's there are big waves every, like, 5, 10, 15 days. It took me a while to make it to 10 days. It took me a couple more physical days in the real world to make it to 15 days. And then what I learned was I found that this game is a great exercise in futility. No matter how much you build your kingdom, you constantly have to look after it because it's being attacked on every side. It's a game of really about not even resource management after a while, because once you get good, you have all the gold you need. You have too much gold. It becomes a game of patience management, where you have to be patient, and you have to want to keep rebuilding and taking care of your people. And it essentially became a metaphor for sitting behind my desk and constantly being attacked on all four sides by real-life things, where no matter how much I do to prevent these things, these things keep happening. So it just became a very good representation of the grind that we have in our everyday lives. And for people who enjoy resource management games, as well as enjoying beautiful pixel art drawn games, it's something that people should definitely take a look at and write about, especially in the sense that it shows that you can do a lot with less when it comes to games. So like the game you were just talking about, you're essentially just using one finger to create this entire experience. You're using two fingers to create this really interesting resource management game, which is stressful. I mean, having these things banging on your wall at night is a horrifying experience because you don't know what direction these little monsters are going to come from. And losing your crown is terrible. You feel bad when you get knocked, when you get it knocked off your head. There goes your kingdom to these little weird creatures from the forest that want it for some reason. If you want an exercise in futility, this is it. This is it right here. This is your beautiful exercise in futility. And I definitely think people should take a look at it. There's a lot of things to discover in the game in terms of its lore, but a lot of it really leaves it up to your imagination. There's no set story. You don't know where you came from or where you're going, and you, as the player, have to make that up, and you definitely have to use your imagination to even want to continue the game. You have to make up your own story to even want to take it really as far as it does to essentially do nothing at all. So what does the side-scrolling add to it? Does it add, like, a challenge that you have to keep running back and forth between different, during the building phase and the collection phase? It definitely adds a challenge. The the bigger your kingdom gets, the further you have to run back and forth, because you have to run to one end of the kingdom, go fix your wall there from the last night, and if your kingdom's big enough, by the time you run all the way back to the other side to fix that, it's night, and you're already under attack on the other side. It's a metaphor. If I've ever seen one. <laughs> Too big to fail, but you will. Exactly. That's it for me. You want to take it over to your last game? Yes. People who know me know that I really love Shadowrun Dragonfall. Harebrained schemes. They put up a Kickstarter last year, 
immediately I pledged my amount, and I just finished playing it just, like, a few weeks ago, Shadowrun Hong Kong, the third in their revival of the Shadowrun series. Now, this isn't really as relevant for our discussion, but I, I think Dragonfall is the better game, but Shadowrun Hong Kong is still great. And it's that same cyberpunk fantasy aesthetic, except now we're in the Far East, we're in Hong Kong, and I'm going to say first, I'm probably not the best person to find out if it did the fantasy version of the Asian aesthetic well. There are people, Chinese people, people from Hong Kong, Asian Americans, who probably could say that a lot better than I can. But to me, I think it did a lot of interesting stuff with what we consider Asian things. Like Feng Shui being an actual material magic that has effect on fortune and luck. It taking the, I guess, the mythology or the philosophy of different ideas and making them materially real, which is what Shadowrun has always done. That's the magic. That's what magic is. And of course, being that it is based on the '80s technocratic cyberpunk genre, the a Asia has a particular place in that genre. So Hong Kong, I guess the jewel of the Far East, is going to have that is going to have that place within the genre, and that the storyline takes place upon a rebuilt Kau walled city. Kau? I'm not sure what the right word for it. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it was a walled city in the '80s that was effectively like 40 acres big and housed like 20,000 people. It was. And there, there were, like, multiple streets in that people would put, like, walkways on roofs because the ground was so crowded that they needed more pathways to get around. And then they built on top of those. And, and it, it was a mess that eventually the Chinese government destroyed. And in the story, they rebuilt it because they needed cheap housing and it became a new walled city because they just ended up bring, bringing back all the troubles. So, it, of course... All Shadowrun games have that class divide thing, and there is the main bad guy that you're facing off against is a corporate CEO, and you're trying to figure out why were you trying to be assassinated. But unlike other games where it's like, okay, you basically have no history, this game gives you a lot of history. In the beginning of the game, you meet up with your brother, and you have to find your foster father, because that's why you're in Hong Kong. You got called there, and you have this past. And it does the same thing. You have various characters that you can have in your party when you go off on missions, and you can talk to them, you can learn their pasts, the same sort of thing you do with any companions, the same thing you did in Mass Effect with those, with those characters. Except when you talk to your brother, a lot of it is about a shared past, so part of it is you actually writing a history, which is something that usually gets left into the imagination more than the broad strokes that are necessary for the plot of the RPG. In this one, you actually craft a history, you actually craft a family, and by the end of it, it feels like it's your reaction not just to like the large politics or the large big morality questions, but questions of family and how you react to people that are close to you. You can be respectful, you can be completely dismissive, you can be outright insulting, or, and I still don't know why they put these in there, you can be com the completely mercenary op. It, it seems like the least interesting way to go, but they, I guess you have to put it in there just in case. 
And, of course, the missions... I feel like they decided to have fun with a lot of these missions because they they push the idea that, okay, you some dialogue options, you have to have a certain stat. Meaning, like, you have to... Now, this was from the, the original Shadowrun Returns game where if you had a certain social background thing that you get through High Charisma, okay, you get this dialogue option. Like, you have the corporate thing. You can, you can talk like a security person. You can talk like a gang member. So you get an extra dialogue option. Then they added, okay, if you have a certain high in a skill, like your biotech is six ranks or your pistols are six ranks, you're able to identify or make comments about certain things within certain dialogues. And I feel like they just ratcheted that up to this point, and the missions are just so much more interesting, where there's one mission where you have to break into a Decker convention. Deccon. Yes, it is exactly what you think. Oh boy. And eventually you have to sneak into the background, and your dwarf companion gets in there, and then you're on with her with the radio, so you're controlling her, except you're controlling her through the dialogue options by telling her what to say and what she'll repeat. And your stats are now superseding her stats because she is sort of phobic from talking to strangers and nervous about that. I just remember where she accidentally said something and the guards just asked her, wait, what did you say? And of course, you, one of the options is, he says, oh, where you try and like make it sound like something else. And he says, like, drat. Now he says, oh, drat, because we have to do this, this, and this and make it sound plausible. For that, me, it was grayed out because I didn't have a high enough stat to... Do that one who says, oh, well, looks like we're going in shooting. And yes, there is a lot of shooting, but for, I don't know, it feels like there's not a commentary, but an awareness of a lot of people that are being killed, because several of the missions, you can actually just choose not to kill people, which kind of just emphasizes all the grunts that you have killed, especially since the Shadowrunner in this case wasn't originally a Shadowrunner, unlike in the other games. It's something you were forced into by circumstance. And that little change makes the, the story and the narrative of what's going on a little more aware of the various tropes and conventions that it has to conform to because it is a cyberpunk video game based on Shadowrun. There are, there's only so far you can push it. And then, of course, you eventually have to fight a, a god created by capitalistic greed by act, that was created by accident. It's, it makes a lot of sense within the actual thing because it's the greed of corporations and the greed and malfeasance of those of the upper crust that cause, through the feng shui, manifested misery. So it's a metaphor. I would say that it isn't a metaphor because it's, it's in your face. It's not subtext, it's text. Fair enough. I really love the Shadowrun games and they always provide something interesting. I think it's because they have a smaller budget. They have a very specific engine they're working in, and the engine looks really good for the art style it's going with. So it's able to push interesting narrative ideas. And because all the missions are self-contained rather than part of this larger open world, they're able to do interesting things in that vein as well. And there's a lot of material and think like any large RPG, there's a lot of things you can grab onto to criticize and look into and figure out, does it do this well? Does it present this well? What is this part saying against the rest? So, yeah, there's just a lot in the that I kind of wish people would grab onto and really dive in. Sounds like the kind of game that I want to play one day. You really do sound like one of those corporate spokesmen now. 
I've worked in a cubicle behind a desk. I've forgotten the weight of a gun. That's a taken reference. <laughs> well, thank you, Fred, for coming on and sharing with us our games, especially coming on in the last minute like you did. It was my pleasure. I mean, I really enjoyed those games. It was nice to finally get a chat about them with someone. So I appreciate you having me on. And if you enjoyed listening to this, and if you enjoyed all our podcasts, work, please rate us on iTunes. We could really use it. Please, please, dear God. And if you liked all, <laughs> and if you like all our projects and work at Critical Distance, take a look at our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/CritDistance. And if you can't afford it, please back us and help us continue our work. Thank you once again for our support. Take care, guys.